Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This past week, there was a survey that came out that said that 60% of professing Christians do not believe in the exclusivity of Christ. In other words, they believe that there's other ways of salvation rather than Jesus Christ. The exclusivity of Christ is pointed out here in John chapter 14. It's the center of our faith. And there's nothing more politically incorrect or repugnant to the people in our day than to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. So as the word of God is open to us this morning, remember that Jesus is the way, he is the truth and the life, and there's no other way to the Father than through Jesus Christ. Time of God, I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Malachi. And as you're turning there, make sure you locate the uh, notes in the, your bulletin. Use that to take notes, follow along, and, and uh, hopefully get a good, uh, a good grasp about what we're studying. This morning, I'm going to begin in Malachi chapter 1. I'll be reading 9 through 10. Um, and, uh, um, and you'll see why we're, I'm, I'm going that direction here in a bit. So we're going to begin in verse 9 through, through 10. This is the word of our living God. Please stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of our King. But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us, with such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to come now in fellowship with you around your word. And uh, Lord, there's a fantastic prophecy before us, and yet, Lord, such difficult words. God, give us understanding. Give us the ability to understand this, your, your word, and how this passage fits into the whole of this wonderful Old Testament epistle. Lord, bless the preaching of your word, the hearing of it, and Lord, may you um, be here, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, unction, and power to, to fellowship with you and be benefited that we might profit from your word. Lord, we entrust this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you've been studying along in Malachi with me, um, then you came this morning expecting that we would spend time looking at verses 6 through 14, since last week we looked at 2 through 5. Now the next section, the next pericope is 6 through 14. However, 
there is this very difficult statement in verses 9 through 10. When applied to the believer, becomes incredibly distracting and, comp- and, and, and incredibly uh, confusing. The text says, verse 10, I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Now he's talking about God's people. How can it be that God is not pleased with us when, as you just heard it rightly stated, the doctrine of justification, our standing before God, is based solely upon Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. He is God's pleasure. He is God's joy. And therefore, if we're in Christ, how could God ever be displeased with us? How could He ever not accept something from our hands? Brothers, it's it's, it's that question. Sisters, it's that question. I want to back up a little bit from this text and answer with you. I want to back up and, so, and, and basically return to a series that I, I come back to you know, here and there, and, and this is um, that time, where we are looking at the glory of God's grace. Okay, Grace or, or glory, it means heaviness, weightiness, substance. The substance of God's grace. Specifically, the role of obedience in the Christian life. So that's what we're going to look at. That's the bigger picture But that picture answers this question before us this morning, and it addresses this text before us this morning. So I'm going to do a topical sermon, a topical um, discussion this morning as we look at Scripture, which means we'll be flipping. If you flip along with me, great. There'll be the uh, uh, verses up there as, as well. Nevertheless, let's dive in. And I want to begin by looking with you at the teaching of grace. And to do that, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. And uh, listen to what God's Word says in Titus 2, verse 13. It says this, or 11 through 12, sorry. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, that's the key word, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Brothers and sisters, Grace, the saving grace of God, what we've looked at throughout this series over the last many years about how God saves in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, that glorious gift comes with the exhortation and the calling and the expectation that we God's people would obey, that we would be righteous, that we would be holy. God did not come to save us that we would sin just a little bit. He came to save us that we would not sin at all. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. God's will for us is that we not sin at all. Period. And in fact, brothers and sisters, it's the glorious gospel which, tells, which, which instructs us not to sin, which is the reason why we cannot sin or are able not to to sin. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin? How shall we who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and thus died to sin, how shall we then live in it? It's incomprehensible. And that is why, brothers and sisters, as a Christian, we want to be holy. We want to be sinless. Not just in standing, but in our practice. In fact, I'll say this, 
if your goal in your life is not to be without sin, you're aiming way too low for your Christian walk. But we live in a state where there is sin, where we, the presence of sin abides, and, and, there, and that is why we struggle. Romans chapter uh, 7, 22, Paul wrote, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. In other words, brothers and sisters, I long to obey, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war. Interesting, Paul's struggle with sin um, might make us think, well, therefore, obedience is never going to happen, therefore, we shouldn't desire, but it's the exact opposite. Paul struggled with sin because he didn't want to sin. He wanted to be holy. He wanted to be righteous. And I trust that if you're in Jesus Christ, that is your passion as well. Our goal is not that we don't sin a little, Our goal is not that we all have a blow-up once every year. That's not bad, that I don't struggle with lust that much. My goal is that I don't struggle at all. That should be our goal in Christ. And if it's anything less, we're aiming way too low. Christ said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's just the overflow of love for Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, first and foremost, notice the teaching of grace. Grace calls us to perfection. Not just in position before God, but in practice. Grace calls us to strive unto perfection. Even though we'll never attain it on this side of the grave, nevertheless, that is our passion, that is our goal. We want to be without sin in what we do and what we think, and what we desire. All right, but that raises a lot of issues. I dare say that as I'm speaking to you right now, those of you who have had a bad sin week, or a bad sin month, or a bad sin year, questions start rising. Good night, am am I saved? And and if if that's a question in your mind, then the next question is, well, how much must I obey before I conclude that I'm saved? What's the role of obedience in the context of of a saving profession of faith? How does God appraise a Christian who sins? How does God appraise a child who willingly sins? A lot of questions, and yet those are just the the tip. Notice with me, if you would, the, the confusion that arises from the teaching of grace. First off, first and foremost, we begin with this recognition that evangelical obedience, what we're talking about, the desire to be holy, to be pure for Evangelical obedience in no way is meritorious. We start there, brothers and sisters. Christianity is not about being saved and spending the rest of your life seeking to placate God or seeking to um, relate to Him on the basis of of, of our uh, performance. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ delivers us from a performance-based relationship with God. You and I, in Jesus Christ, are not guilty. Scott read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, fantastic passage describing, but God, being rich in grace and mercy, saved us by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And therefore, your relationship with God, my relationship with God, is not based upon our obedience. It's not based upon performance. It's not based upon how much I read God's Word. If I read God's Word, He likes me today. Oh, I didn't have a quiet time. I didn't spend time with with, with God. In fact, I've been sinning. Therefore, God must be angry with me. Brothers and sisters, that is all wrong. That is not how we live. We live before the glorious face of God in which, by which, the Lord looks at us and says, You are my child. 
I accept you fully in Jesus Christ. Or Malachi 1, verse uh, 2 through 5, I love you. You are my child and you'll always bear my name. And therefore, brothers and sisters, our walk with God is not performance-based. Let me show that in Scripture. Galatians 5, 1. Notice the text. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Our salvation freed us. From what? To do anything that we want? No. Read on. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What he's talking about, the freedom referenced here, is the freedom from merit-based religion. Freedom from placating God, a religion of placation. Freedom from relating to God on the basis of what I do. Because I did these things, God now will bless me. Because I did these things, God's now going to get me. Brothers, we've been freed from that. Okay? Um, it was for freedom Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject to a, again to a yoke of, of slavery. Behold, I, Paul... Say this to you, if you receive circumcision, what he means by that, if you go back to works righteousness, placating God through your, what you, your deeds, and in this case, circumcision. If you receive circumcision, then two things. Christ will be of no benefit to you. Mark that phrase. Christ will be of no benefit to you. He's talking about saved people. They've already been benefited by Christ. He's not saying you won't be saved. He's saying upon your salvation, if you Go back to works righteousness. You will not receive further benefit from Christ. We're going to come back to that at the very end. And secondly, you're under obligation to keep the whole law. So brothers and sisters, we first and foremost confess, profess, demand that our righteousness is bound up in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone. Period. That having been said, there's a host of scriptures that speak of being unacceptable before God. Listen to Isaiah chapter 111. It's addressed not to pagan or lost individuals, but to God's people. Isaiah 1. What are your multiple sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, the Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Boy, Greg, it sounds like our relationship is based upon what we do. No, it's not. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. You might think, okay, th this is talking about what they're doing. Their sin is not acceptable. But they are well, we keep on reading verse 5. So then when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Brothers and sisters, that's a passage which seems to contradict or at least muddy the waters of the clear teachings of grace. Well, one answer might be, well, he's not talking to sheep here. He's talking to goats. He's talking about non-believers here. Well, that may be possible, Isaiah one, I, in fact, that, that's probably, that could very well be the case. But it's not the case for so many other uh, passages. Malachi chapter 1. Hopefully your Bibles are there. Malachi 1, it'll be up there, I'm sure. But if not, look in your, in your laps. Malachi chapter 1, we just read it, verse 10. Speaking to people whom he has loved, verses 1, 2 through 5. He's just said, who you are that whom I have loved. What does he say to these people whom he has loved? 
Notice with me verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Now we might say that's a bad translation. In the Hebrew, it doesn't say, it's not that, that strong. No, that's not true. It's a good translation, and it is that strong. In fact, notice Malachi 3.2, if you are there. Malachi 3.2, But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then... The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Brothers and sisters, this language is found throughout Scripture. Listen to Psalm 104, 33, one of the many psalms which speaks this way. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to Him. The psalmist loving God wants his thoughts on top of being saved to be pleasing unto God. Hebrews 10, 37, Yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous ones will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. Singer leans 5, 9, listen to what Paul's aspiration, one of his things in life. Therefore also we have as our ambition, he's saved, but his ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. That's Paul's passion. He's already saved. And yet he wants his life to be pleasing to the Lord. Colossians 1, in fact, that became the substance for, for his prayer life for the church. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work. So we got a confusion point here. The, the glorious message of grace is that you are saved and freed from a life of meritorious living be, before God. God has, has made you righteous in Christ. You are now, as it relates to the law of God, perfect. You are not guilty of violating it. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the gospel that's justification. But then we have a whole host of scriptures in, in the Bible which seem to make it sound like God's people, having been saved, can be not pleasing to God. That they can actually um, be displeasing. That their service can be unacceptable to God. How do we jive these two truths? Because that's, that's what that's Malachi 1's dealing with here. Well, the church has answered, that, has answered that in a couple of ways. One way, a group of people in the body of Christ, basically one answer is, one response is to impose a hermeneutical bias on the text in question, a law-gospel paradigm. Let me back up and explain what that means. There's a whole group of people, a whole group of Christians today, denomination actually, multiple denominations, that's just, that, that, that subscribe to this hermeneutical paradigm known as the law-gospel. And that's basically this. Everything in God's Word is law. Everything. If Hebrews, I'm sorry, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives. That is not given to teach a man how to have a good marriage. That is given 
to place a burden on the man as a Christian. Your burden, love your wife. None of us are going to love our wives well or perfectly. Therefore, you and I are going to hear that and go, Oh, Lord, I'm burdened. I can't do it. And that will drive me to Christ. So the whole purpose of every passage in Scripture, every command, every statement, every statement of what you should be is to show you that you can't be that, is to demonstrate you need Christ. So the law comes, condemns us, burdens us, and it drives us to Jesus Christ. That's the law gospel paradigm. The only problem with that paradigm is that it falls short of Scripture. Listen to 1 John 5, verse 3. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now that, brother and sister, is a complete contradiction to what the law gospel paradigm says. It says every command given in Scripture is given to burden you, to drive you to Christ. But brothers and sisters, in Christ, if you understand Christ, if you understand grace, the Word of God is not a burden. So if I come to you and say, husbands, love your wives, if you are hearing that filtered through the understanding of justification of grace, that's not a burden to you. That's your glory and joy. In fact, listen to Psalm 19.10. There's a whole lot more, but notice, speaking of the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of God, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter, not a burden, also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Remember that phrase. Brothers and sisters, as you and I uh, submit ourselves to the Word of God, the Word of God results in that life that it prescribes results in great blessing from God. So there is this con- there's this tension. Justification says I am perfect in God's eyes. Or not just in His eyes, perfect before the law of God. But yet there's this host, this class of scriptures that says, yet you can be displeasing. One answer is to say, truth be known, God's giving those statements about pleasing Him simply to condemn you. Somebody show you, you'll never measure up. And when you go, I'm supposed to be pleasing God at all times, and I can't, therefore I need Jesus Christ. Law, gospel. But the problem is it doesn't square with Scripture. Scripture teaches us that it's the third use of the law, to be honest, evangelical obedience. Brothers and sisters, because God's word is given to us, to his people, it's a light into our path. It's a lamp to our feet. It's the source of great blessing for his people, and therefore not a burden, but a delight. Um, Brian Chappell wrote these words. Our obedience does not qualify us for his mercy, and our disobedience does not disqualify us from it. So why is God concerned for our behavior? The answer is the heart that dispenses God's grace is the same that designs God's law. God does not save his children from sin's disease and then encourage them to play in its traffic. His standards revive the soul. I circle this, underline that. Revive the soul, make wise the simple, bring joy to the hearts by the relationships they protect. The reality is that God has established his commands in order to care for those his grace secures. God's word is the word of a parent to a child that says, don't touch that stove. You don't do that to condemn them so that they cling to you. You do that, they're your loving child. You don't want them to be hurt, so you give them a law, a commandment. And that commandment is for their good. And the child of God, knowing... 
this is a fantasy world, the child of God, knowing that, that their parent loves them more than life, hears that and says, oh, goody, that is exactly what I want to do because my mom and dad love me. He goes on, out of love for us, he calls us to walk in paths that are perfect for experiencing his love. So one answer to this conflict, to this struggle, I hope, I hope you're sensing it, is law gospel. Brothers and sisters, it falls short. It doesn't answer the issue. It says all of those passages where Paul says, I want to be pleasing to, uh, to God, they're there to condemn you. They're not there to, to inspire you. Not No, don't even follow that. That, that uh, falls short. There's the other side that says a second response is to interpret the righteousness that we receive in justification in light of God's call to sanctification. You have these in your, your, your notes. Those who do this say that the pleasure referenced in the Bible, I want to be pleasing to the Lord, is housed only in Jesus Christ. Right? God is pleased with you because Jesus Christ's righteousness covers you. And because Christ's righteousness covers you, He's therefore pleased with you. Now that's getting better. I like that answer better than law gospel. A lot better. That's known as the historical redemptive answer. Jesus Christ's righteousness covers you and therefore you are pleasing to God in Christ. Amen, brothers and sisters. Amen. That is the answer. Except it falls short. Because brothers and sisters, if it is true I am pleasing to God because of Jesus Christ, then there can be nothing I could ever do that would make me not be pleasing before God, or conversely, there's nothing I could do that would make me more pleasing before God if Christ is the sole pleasure of God in me. You follow that? If Christ is God's pleasure in me, I can be antinomian. I can just go out and do whatever I want because I'm always pleasing to God. Well, brothers and sisters, the problem with that is Paul, as a saved person, wanted to live in such a way as to please God. He prayed for God's people to do the same thing. The psalmists long to have their meditations be pleasing before God. Why would you believe that um, if you've been received by Jesus Christ and thus his righteousness is your righteousness and therefore you're always pleasing to him, why would you want your thoughts to be pleasing to God when they already are? Everything you are about you is pleasing to God. Why would you want that? And again, it falls short. And the reason it falls short, well, I'm going to answer that in one moment. So what's the solution? Big answer is, brothers and sisters, the solution is delighting in God. Now, what does that mean? Let me back up and as a, as a beginning. Let's begin by recognizing how obedience is attained in the Christian life. How does evangelical obedience, how do we, how do we grow on our walks with God and cease sinning? How can we or, or d, d, uh, diminish in our sinful uh, living? How does the Bible tell us to, uh, to do it? You might think, oh, it's a bunch of, you know, don't do this, do, have a quiet time, be in God's word, you know, don't look at pornography, uh, don't go with, with, you know, don't chew and smoke and go with women who do, or whatever the phrase is, right? right? Do, you know, do, do all these different things, and that will make you more holy. Brothers and sisters, that might make you twice the son of hell. Read Matthew 23. So the answer is not by duty. Duty is not what's going to make us more holy, more obedient to God. It might make us look more obedient. Read Matthew 23. We may look fantastic, but as, as Christ described the Pharisees of his day, they were twice the son of hell by virtue of their religiosity. Their religiosity, brothers and sisters, coming to church, reading the Bible, praying, meditating, memorizing scripture, teaching, evangelizing, 
Brothers and sisters, that's religious activity. And if you think that's going to make you more holy, you have just jettisoned the faith. Galatians 5. You've just just made Christ no benefit to you. And now you're under the obligation to fulfill the entire law. So it's not based upon our holiness is not attained by what we do. Well, how is it attained? Brothers and sisters, listen to the word of God, Psalm 26.3. And before I read this verse, recognize what is your chief end? What is it, brothers and sisters? Glorify God and enjoy him. We're going to talk about that latter part. That's the whole series, The Glory of God's Grace. I've taught you now multiple messages that God secures our growth in grace, our obedience, our perfection, name it. It is secured not as you and I buck up and work on being holy. It's secure as you and I grow in our apprehension of the greatness and the glory and as we take delight and the glory and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. The more you delight in God, the more you will naturally follow Him. Psalm 26, verse 3, Thy loving kindness is before my eyes, and thus I have walked in thy truth. How is it that David walked in the truth of God? Because before David's eyes were the loving kindness of God. He focused on the loving kindness of God. He meditated upon God. He, He thought of how glorious God's character was. And the more he did that, the more that that led him to walk in the truth of God. The more he, he, he made much of God, the less impact did the lust of sin have in his life. The passions of his flesh. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 5, Paul wrote, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. You want to know the steadfastness of Christ? What's the steadfastness of Christ? First Corinthians 15. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. You want, to, you want to grow in the steadfastness of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, grow in the love of God. What does that mean? Understanding it. Apprehending it. Marveling over it. Glorying in it. 1 Peter 2, 2-3. Like newborn babes, long for the pure miracle of the word that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. What does that mean? To grow in respect of salvation. That's talking about holiness. That's talking about obedience. That's talking about perfection. Growing in your walk with God is growing in holy habits. What's that based upon? If, or the word since, same word, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the more you taste the kindness of God in your walk, the more that your walk is bent and built upon and leaning upon um, glorying in Christ, marveling over His cross work, gazing upon His character, marveling at His grace, looking at at His infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being and how that impacts love, cross work, forgiveness, mercy, all of that. The more that that becomes your meditation, your passion, your glory and joy in life, the more that you will grow in your salvation. Psalm 11, 111.10, the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It's the, 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 the combined actions of, of reverence and love. A reverential love of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that reverential love, a good understanding, have all those who do his commandments.
brothers and sisters, do you know what reverential love does? It leads you to do God's commandments. You want to be more holy in your, in your life? Don't leave from here and start doing religious activities. That'll just simply mess you up. Leave here growing, striving, growing to come to a greater apprehension of the glory and the grace of God. Now you say, how do I do that, Greg? Well, by reading the word, by praying, by meditating, by confessing. But you just said that that isn't growing. I didn't say that. I said, if you think that's going to be the magic pill that grows you, these external activities, you've just become twice the son of hell. That's, I did say that. But, but brothers and sisters, what those religious activities potentially miss is the objective. The objective is not doing them as an end in themselves. It's doing them as a vehicle to gaze upon the glory and the greatness and the, and the, and the, and the grace of God. Nehemiah, don't ever forget, what is our strength as Christians? You want to be more holy? What is your strength? You want to be more godly? What is your strength to do that? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Interesting. It's not more religious activity. It's the joy of the Lord. It's not placating God. It's not having this tit-for-tat relationship. It's this glorious relationship with God. We're gazing upon Him. I'm filled with joy. And that emotion, eventually emotion, that, that conviction of soul which results in, in glorious emotion, that trumps any lust that this, that this world can throw at me. It trumps it. And thus, brothers and sisters, if you will be one who invests in this, makes this the focus of your walk with God, coming to a greater apprehension and understanding of the glory, the weightiness of God in His transcendency, in His imminence, in His holiness, justice, in His mercy, kindness, faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, that will become your strength. And you'll be in the same company as David who said, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, oh my God, my soul thirsts for God for the living God, when shall I come and appear before him? The, the bent of David's walk was panting for God. Asaph, you'll be in good company with Asaph. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. And then he ends with this glorious statement. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. You'll be in good company with Moses. I pray thee, show me thy glory. That was the bent of Moses' life. God, I want to see you more fully. I have come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, God, now that I realize that who you are and what you've done for, for me, Help me to see you more clearly, to know you more richly, to cling to you more deeply. God, may that be my passion. You'll be in the, in the company of Paul, who wrote these glorious words. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and that I may know him. Skipping down to verse 10. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his supper. Brothers and sisters, truly our chief end is knowing, loving, and enjoying Christ. 
Mel's just read it. It's a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. It's commanded, brothers and sisters. It was for this purpose we um, were created and saved. We are at our best when we are enraptured by the Lord himself. Okay, now with that, that is how God grows his people by grace. That is his plan for sanctification in your life. Make much of Christ. Pursue him. Seek him. All right, that being said, notice how that dovetails with the pleasure of God. Okay? It's with this in mind that the Bible speaks of the Christian being pleasing or acceptable to the Lord. Listen to Hebrews 11.6. You know the verse. And without faith, what's faith, brothers and sisters? We're not creedal faith. It's not the faith once delivered to the saints. That's not the faith referenced here. It's not justifying faith. It's not the faith that occurs when someone is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. The faith referenced in Hebrews 11 is the practical faith, and it's not this objective practical faith in the sense that, you know, it's just simply trusting God for the future. It's trust, it is. But brothers and sisters, it's a trust that, trust that, that is the overflow of a heart depending upon, communing with, seeking, desiring, and enjoying God. Hebrews 11 is all about enjoying God. And when you and I are enjoying God, that's when we leave our homes and that's when we suffer for Christ. And that's where no burden, no cancer, no violence, no difficulty is too much in order to serve God. Right? Verse 6, And without faith, without that, it's impossible to please God. So, there, so where the historical redemptive falls short at least what I call that, when I'm a client, where it falls short is where it says, the only pleasure God will ever have in you is Jesus Christ. No, brothers and sisters, there is real pleasure that God has in you as a Christian. And that pleasure is when you and I, like a child, are depending upon God. When you and I, like that child, right, um, what's the kingdom of God? It's the childlike faith that says, I just want my mommy. I want my daddy. Let me cling to him. That's what I want. He's my comfort. He's my protection. He's my joy. I think I'm pretty good with, with kids. We had six of them. And by that, I mean little babies. I have a technique. I haven't ever published this yet or tried to sell it, but I might. I've got a technique where... You can, in, in as little short as one week, have a, a six-month-old a six baby in your arms and tell them, no crying, and they won't cry. Got a technique, guys. I love babies. I love these little kids. Okay? Brothers and sisters, if you gave me your child, that baby would haul its head off. Right? Ah! But Greg, you're, you're, you've got this. You're the, whore, you're the baby whisperer. Right? You know, you're the baby whisperer. You know, brothers and sisters, it doesn't work unless they're your kids. If I'm holding your kid in the nursery and they're just screaming and I press that panic button, you know, please come and you walk through the door, that baby's going to go, yeah, and cling to you. Brothers and sisters, that's when you and I are there, that pleases God. Hebrews 11 says, we're going to skip James 4. Matthew 25. You see this in practice with the parable where God tells us pictures the pleasure of God for his children. Matthew 25. 
Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents. Now this is important, you see this. The, this slave made five talents. He laid them before the master and said, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. Now notice what his master's response was. It wasn't 10 talents? Wow! It wasn't that. We think it's that. When you read this passage, you walk away going, that man was impressed by the duty of what, 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 what this man accomplished. That is not what you're reading here. The master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. What is it that made God, made this master pleased? The faithfulness. The fidelity. The childlike faith that says, yeah, The third servant, what does he say? I knew you to be a harsh man and a jerk and all these other things, so I buried my thing. That's not me, man. I know you are a glorious being whom I love. And any time that you and I act upon that in your life, hear this now, this is massive, star this one. Any time you and I act upon that desire in our lives, what we do is pleasing to God. Think about that. Well, no, no, Christ is what makes God pleased to me. Well, that's the foundation, of course. That's the necessary cause, okay? That's the necessary cause. Without Christ, you can't be pleasing. But once you're in Christ, if you and I, in function, are acting out of love, devotion, if what we're doing is the overflow of love and devotion and communion with God, that act is pleasing to God. Now, the historical redemptive, or what I'm calling that, says, no, but it's all mixed with sin. I skipped all those verses. It's all mixed with, with sin, right? The things I want to do, I don't think. So how could God ever approve of me a sinner? He can't. He can only approve of Jesus Christ. That is wrong. That is wrong. And that is where that falls short. Christ is indeed the necessary cause for God's pleasure. But brothers and sisters, it's very clear when you and I are leaning upon Christ and acting upon that leaning, we're pleasing. Hebrews 11.6. Matthew 25. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Brothers and sisters, do you understand what made this master thrilled was not just what they did. What they did thrilled them. He did. Yes, it is. I'm thrilled with what you did. But it wasn't the religious activity. That's where we mess it up. We think, oh, if I read the Bible, that will make God happy. Brothers and sisters, the, Mal- the people in Malachi's day were wor- offering worship services, sacrifice, doing all these religious activities, but they weren't doing it as the overflow of a love of God. They were doing it to placate God. And God said, I don't want that sacrifice. That's not what I want. I'm not after Bible reading, Christian. I'm not after memorizing scripture. I'm not after you doing all these religious activities. What I want from you is a heart that wants me. And then everything after that flows. And if you have a heart that loves God, what are you going to do? Read the Bible. Go to church. Offer sacrifices. And those will be pleasing to God. But if you're doing it, missing this essential element of your salvation, enjoying God. If you're not doing it as the overflow of grace, of enjoying God, then brothers and sisters, it may look phenomenal to the world. It's just dead man. It's it's just whitewashed tombs. 
right? It looks good, but it's empty. It's a form of godliness with no power whatsoever. And that's what you see in Matthew 25. Okay, all that, brothers and sisters, I'm ready now to wrap this up. With that backdrop, how do we interpret passages about acceptable and well-pleasing? If you're in my, my notes, I'm on number three on the back side, C3. With this backdrop, how do we interpret the language of acceptable and well-pleasing when it comes? First and foremost, we remove it completely, the language, completely from justification, from the realm of justification, though it will be forever tied there. We'll move it from the realm of justification into the realm of sanctification, specifically our love relationship with him as our father. When we do this, and this is now massive, this is the underlying part, and you, I know I've written this for, for you. We understand acceptable and well-pleasing, those designations in scriptures, are extensions of God's condescending grace by which he has chosen to delight in the acts or attitudes of his children, which come as the result of seeking to love, know, and serve the Lord. That's the answer. What's the, how do I deal with unacceptable and justification? Brothers and sisters, you are always, always received by God. He never casts you out. But in your walk with God, if you're doing religious activity simply to placate God, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Galatians 5. So why do I re do religious activity? I do it because that, as Brian Chappell said in that quote, because that's the, the way by which I enjoy the love of God. I read the Bible to enjoy the love of God. I pray to enjoy the love of God. I go to church. I worship God, not to check off, but to enjoy the love of God. I study scripture for that purpose. That's my telos. And when that telos is there, wow, let me read it again. We understand acceptable and well-pleasing is extensions of God's condescending grace by which he has chosen to delight. Get this. He's, well, let me just back up. Condescending grace. Brothers and sisters, I don't, we have not, I have not in the 20 years I've been in this pulpit spent a lot of time on this, and I will in time. In, in time. The condescending grace of God. I think that is a, is a, is a doctrine that is um, um, alien to so many people in the church today. God accepted David, though he had multiple wives. Calvin has a great treatise on it. He did it because of, his, because of the nature of the covenant and the nature of his love, which is condescending. It's a condescending, and we, that word for us is this, arrogant condescension. He doesn't mean that. He means God comes down to our levels and accepts our work as a parent would the work of a child. That's condescending grace. And it's real. It's not a fiction. It's real. God genuinely delights in the work of his children when that work is inspired out of a love for him. Let me tell you a great story. Brian Chappell. I may go a little bit long. I'm almost done, but I'm, but I'm looking at, at time. Let me tell you a great story. Brian Chappell in his book on holiness through grace he relates this story. Brothers and sisters, this, this, this to me is, it hopefully puts this in clear vision. He's a young man, eight, eight years old, a young boy, eight to ten years old, somewhere in that vicinity. And his dad on this farm, wherever they were living, believed that every young man needs to learn how to cut down a tree with a crossbow saw. So they've got this tree already felled, and now they're cutting it up. So he and his brothers are, are on, on each side of this crossbow, and they're cutting this massive tree you know, in sections. And he's cutting it, and he gets about halfway through, and it turns out it was rotten on the inside, and the thing just broke. And it shattered. It broke and, and, and hit the ground hard and broke into pieces. Very dangerous. Well, Brian looked down 
And through the eight-year-old eyes that he had, or however old he was, he looked, what looked, he looked upon a piece of wood that looked like, like the head of a horse. Dad's birthday's on the horizon, so he took that. He didn't put it in the burn pile. He took that, and he got some two-by-fours, and he built a neck and a body, put a tail on it, and attached the head of that horse head, right, onto this thing. He put nails on the, on the neck, two-by-four, um, wrapped it up, and when his dad opened it up, he said, Thanks, Brian. What is it? Right? And he said, he said, It's a tie rack. All right? The little nails said, Oh, fantastic. So his dad moved it to his bedroom. He propped it against the wall because it wouldn't stand up straight. That's how bad it was. Propped it against the wall, and he used that for the next 20 or plus years. One day, as an adult, Brian Chaplin went back to visit his family, and, and there he walks in and he sees, he walks by his folks' door, sees that tie rack that he made. And he sees it now through adult eyes. He realizes that had to have been the most pathetic gift. Right? It's propped up against the wall because it won't stand up. It's ugly as the day is long. It doesn't even look like a horse head. But to his little eight-year-old mind, it looked like a horse head at the right angle, perhaps, right? It was a horrible gift. But this is what he wrote. He says, yet, God, yet my dad received it, not because the gift was so good, but because my dad that's the condescending grace of God. He accepts our labors not because they're so good, but because He's so good. When those labors are out of an overflow of love for God, God delights in those labors. Have you seen my tie rack? Now we might laugh at that heap. I'm sure Brian Chapel looks at that and laughs at that. But I guarantee you his dad wasn't laughing at it based on how he describes his relationship with his dad. His dad was overjoyed that his son would give him that. And that is the heart of the God, the Father, towards you. His pleasure in you is not simply the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yes, that goes without saying. That is necessary. If you're not saved by Jesus Christ, you will never be pleasing to God. But the pleasure of God and used with regards to God's people, is, is, is a description of God's condescending love whereby he receives the work, the labors of our hands when they are the overflow of, of, of love. Now, what is therefore we mean by unacceptable? Okay, we'll talk about this more as we look at Malachi. Unacceptable then there by definition First of all, acceptable and pleasing is covenant language. Unacceptable is also covenant language. Now, I've told you, highlight that phrase, how, you know, knowing Christ gives you benefits. And if you don't, if, you're, if you choose to go back to works righteousness, Christ will not benefit you. There's a whole class of scriptures that talks about the benefits that come from a relationship with Christ, provided that relationship with Christ is being fed by grace, by his love, Galatians 5. If you choose, if you reject grace and you rebuild what was once destroyed, Christ will be of no benefit for you. You will not have the benefits. James 1.17, William Lawford, he has a, a great book on the Lord's Prayer, and he talks about the condescending love of God with sonship. Our Father who art in heaven. God has deigned to relate to you and me as a father to his son. And when you and I relate as a father to his son, what we do is acceptable. But when you and I give up grace, give up being moved out of love and devotion to God, and what we're doing is out of, 
a simple desire to placate God, to show how righteous and glorious I am, where I'm delighting in pride and not humility. Brothers and sisters, that is unacceptable. And what that means then, you, you will not receive any of the benefits that come from a saving relationship with Christ. I'll say it again. Unacceptable is covenant language, which doesn't mean God is now saying, get out of my sight, you disgust me. It means that you and I will not benefit from, from the glorious benefits. We will not be, be helped by the glorious benefits that come from that relationship with God, moved out of love and grace. Now, I'm going to come back to this, but our confession talks about it. What are the benefits that flow from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Assurance of pardon, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, perseverance. Brothers and sisters, when you and I throw out love and we come back and adopt placation, you're not going to have assurance. You're not going to have joy. You're not going to have peace. You're going to struggle with perseverance. You're going to struggle with all that stuff. That's what it means. That is a, a covenantal designation where you and I are now void of the benefits of the covenant. So when we come back to Malachi chapter 1 next week and we read verse 10, oh, I just wish you'd shut the doors. That's like God saying, I wish you'd stop reading the Bible. I wish you'd stop praying. I wish you'd stop doing all this religious activity. Is there not a man among you who will stand up with the boldness and courage and say, stop reading the word? Can you imagine that? But brothers and sisters, if the people reading the word are doing it to placate God, that act is sin. And that's what God's people were doing. They, they were thinking, we got to placate God. Life's been difficult. We're going to pick this up next week. Life's been difficult. Therefore, I'm going to do all these things to placate God. And God, therefore, putting my time in, will have to be moved at some point. In other words, the walk with God had become nothing but a pagan relationship. He's this being up there. We've got to placate. God says, shut the doors. That is not, that is not a relationship. So we're going to return back to this. But I want you to see lastly, brothers and sisters, our, our standards say the same as what I'm preaching to you today. The section of Westminster Confession, last quote, 16.6, on good works, says this. Believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unreprovable in God's sight. Think of the horse head. Think of the horse tyrant but that he, looking upon them in his son, so you're saved, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. That's the motive part. If it's not sincere, if you're doing it out of a desire to placate, God's not going to accept it. But if you're doing it because of love, he accepts it if it's sincere, although accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. That's the condescending grace of God. Brothers and sisters, I'm done. I just hope today, I hope you got it, that today you leave here with this in your mind. I want to pursue a deep love relationship with God. I want to grow in that. I want to have my life be the overflow. Every religious activity I do, everything I do be the overflow of that. Because if that is the case, then I know I secondly will be well-pleasing to God. And what that means is, God already accepts you in Jesus Christ and the beloved. That means is your heavenly father in re reality, in real time and space, will look upon your horse head 
gift and say, I like it. I like it. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for your word. And God, so much here. I realize my pea brain mind may have muddied the waters rather than clarify them. But Lord, I pray by your spirit, you would clean up my mess and you would enable us, your people, to understand that we are, Lord, gloriously relating to you on the basis of Jesus Christ, that that will never change, that we will never, ever be, be under condemnation or kicked out. But secondly, Lord, may we also understand that, Lord, our, our, our glory, our joy as a Christian is bound up in you, rejoicing not in the work of our hands, but your character, your thoughts, your desires, your glory, your joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. God, I pray, mold and shape us to be a people who would delight in you, O oh God. And then, Lord, we would leave here, God, serving you, yes, faultingly as we do, imperfectly as we do, yet with the assurance that, Lord, we love because you first loved us. And in our love to you, you as a father rejoice, as a father rejoices over the gifts of his children. Lord, so we give you our lives accordingly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the table of the Lord.